Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our As website, the story you can also find notes so and daily devotionals right based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we, we hope you like today's when message. We, if we really do stop and consider, if we really do pause for a brief moment, if we really do get to the place where we're so anticipating, celebrating the coming of the Christ, does it still cause awe? Does it still cause us to be in a, have a wondrous view? Does it cause us to ask questions about the different parts of the story? Does it cause us to wonder why God did it the way he did it? Does it cause us to draw closer to the one who drew near to us? Question that begs itself every single Christmas. God's pursuit of his people started long before the day Christ was born. It started right after the first person sinned. And God said, even though you chose your own way and you didn't find me to be enough, and you didn't find my way to be good enough, I want you. I love you and want a relationship with you. I want to forgive you. And I want you to walk with me. The birth of Christ is all a part of that continuing story of how he loves us and will let nothing stop him from loving us. Not, a, not distance, not time, not relationship, nothing. He will not allow anything to stop him from demonstrating that love. If you keep, don't mind this morning, let us settle in and review the story of God coming near. It's recorded in two of the four Gospels. It's recorded in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. Both of them are written to two different audiences, one to a Gentile audience and one to a Jewish audience. When we move past all the clutter, we see the most important story of all, that God came to save his people. God came to make all people his who are willing to receive that salvation. God came to give the gift of life. And he did it himself. He didn't send some ambassador on his behalf. He did it himself. Let us start looking at, picture if you will, the nativity scene. Maybe you have one at your house. Maybe you had one at your home growing up. Maybe there's one on your mantle. Uh, we were driving around looking at Christmas lights the other day, and we saw this really, really beautiful one on a lawn right next to the dentist from the Rudolph story and Santa and the moving uh, Frosty the Snowman thing. And it was, it was, it was a great uh, sea of decorations. And I went, wow, that's it, right? Jesus is stuck right in the middle of the clutter of everything. But I also noticed that there were some parts to the nativity scene that we just have gotten used to. It's just part of the story. And we even think that it is the real story. And so we're going to take a, a run back through the story of God coming near. And we're going to start as we remove some of the clutter 
we're going to start with the star and the wise men. And it tells a story of God pursuing us because every part of the story of Christ coming near tells a story of God's great love for us. And this one tells a story of God's pursuit of each and every person. Let's read it from the book of Matthew, chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Quick question for you. How many kings were associated there that day? Three, because that's what the song tells us. Um, But that's not what the story tells us. We don't know how many were there. right? We don't know how many were there. But we typically and oftentimes think three, especially because that's what's oftentimes in our nativity scenes. But let's remove that clutter a little bit. What it's also so often in our our nativity scenes is that these kings, if you will, if they're kings, they're probably a good chance they were noble people for sure. But what we do know about them is they were astrologers, not astronomers, as many would like to say. They were astrologers. And we often see them in nativity scenes just decked out and blinged out in gold and chains and with their crowns and everything else. They had just come through a long desert journey where that is no way that would have happened because they would have been robbed, blind, and killed for their bling. It was a treacherous time. It was a dangerous road. Literally, desert pirates waiting to take over every caravan that traveled. It was, there was no way it could have just been three that were a part of this entourage because they had to travel as a protected and guarded caravan through this area. And it would have caught King Herod's attention, not because somehow some little uh, bird told him that there was a few guys running through the desert. It's because it would have been an entire entourage in protection of the treasures that were being brought to Jesus that would have caught his attention. The king of the area would know when something like that is happening. And so he called these men to his his counsel, to his attention. And he said, hey, tell me what's going on. What are you doing here? And they began to talk, and he called. Those men called and said, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, that's me. Do you understand how these wise men showed up? Now, let's understand something else about these wise men, these magi, these astrologers. Astrology was absolutely forbidden by Jewish law. It is the study of the stars and the moon, and that's how they sought to hear God and other gods, any god that would potentially answer them or give them any type of uh, counsel. They would align the stars, and they would see what they wanted to see, and then they would go to their people, and they would say, hey, this is what we feel like is supposed to be happening, and they would go for it. They didn't come from an unknown land. Chances are best that they came from a land called Babylon. Do you remember that? 
They had held Israel captive. They had desecrated the temple. They had stolen all the gold from the temple of God and brought it into the temple of Baal. A horrible, defiled tradition of worship. But they took the things meant for the living God, Yahweh, and put them in this terrible place. For Matthew to open up with this story would be unthinkable. Why would he share this to the Jewish people? For the kingdom can't possibly be big enough for these people. Uh, Jesus didn't come. The Messiah didn't come for these people. The Messiah came for the Jewish people, the religious people, the one who kept the law. The Messiah didn't come for these people. Yes, 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 he did. Yes, he did. And that's the very first way that that Matthew opens up and grabs the attention of his Jewish audience. And he goes, (laughs) the Christ absolutely came for all. And he has been in pursuit of all people. Since the beginning. And here is the Christ. And he has come not just for the law-abiding Jew, which there is no such thing. But he came for the Gentile as well. And he came for the one that seems appalling to you. And the one that is absolutely appalling to your traditions and your religion. That you have turned your back on that you have ignored, that you thought God would never love. The Christ came in pursuit of all people. Christmas tells us that our God pursues us and us, even the worst of sinners. God cares and is in pursuit of us. He ordered the heavens so that they would be able to find him. Can you imagine that? Here they are studying the stars. And God cared so much about them. He entered into the very thing that he had told people not to do. Knowing that they were doing it, he ordered the stars in such a way that they would point to him so that they could come and worship him. God used that which they were searching and seeking. That was literally against him to call them to himself. Our God will stop at nothing besides sin itself, to call us to him. In humility, he painted a picture in the sky, if you will, so that these men could travel a great distance to worship the living God and to find life. There is nobody too evil. There is no one too far gone. There is no one who God does not love nor want a relationship with. There is no one that is outside of the scope of his influence. There is no one that the gospel is not supposed to go out to. There is no one. And so Matthew opens up the story. And it's not with a king dressed in bling. And and it's not at the moment of the birth. It took them some two years to get there. Jesus would have been about two years old when the Magi arrived. Was their journey that long? We don't think it was that long. Maybe it took that long to see the message. I don't know, but it took Jesus to wait for them to respond and to arrive and to worship. And that is what our God does. He enters into our life in just the right way that we can understand him and know him. He doesn't look at our past and say, I'm, you're not good enough for me. None of us are good enough for him. 
He says, I will enter into your life no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what you're about. I will call you despite everything you're doing into my presence because I stepped into your presence. And I'm bringing my love and my grace and my mercy with me. The very first part of the story that we need to get rid of all the clutter and realize is that the star and the wise man speak the story of God in pursuit of each one of us. In essence, he's saying, I want all of you. He said, I'm not, I didn't come here to, to be held up in some tightly knit place and say, hey, once everybody knows exactly what holiness is and knows how to do it right and gets all the right things down, then come to me and then I'll give you some sort of blessing and you'll be called mine. No, I come to you in the midst of everything you're involved in today, no matter how bad or how ugly or how evil it is, and I call you to myself to walk with me and I will teach you what holiness is. I will teach you what righteousness is. I will teach you how to live but I take you just the way you are. I am in pursuit of you. Something I want you to see in this story is that we were all once enemies of God. Every single one of us were enemies of God. And that God wants everyone to be saved. It's not in your notes, but it is one, the passage in your notes that you can look to. But if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. This is Paul's instructions to Timothy. Ask God to keep them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and able to understand the truth. We were all enemies of God at one time. We were all unworthy of his salvation and his love at one time. But he came here to say, I am in pursuit of you just the way you are, and I will show you a better life and a better way, and I will show you what holiness and righteousness is. And his desire is for all people to know him, not just some people, but all people to know him. And finally this, that we have a job this Christmas to tell others about this great love, which is what we're sitting here doing this morning and tomorrow and every Sunday, and what you will have the opportunity to do in your homes over the next two days. Tell everyone that he came in pursuit of all people. Tell everyone of the love that he came to demonstrate. When we look at the story of the shepherds, we see that there is a God that cares for the least of these. When we look at the story of the shepherds, we see that there is a God that cares for the least of these. In Luke 2, 8 through 11, it says this, And there were shepherds living among, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And why is it that the shepherds speak that the Savior, the Messiah, came to demonstrate care for even the least of these? Because that's who the shepherds were. They were the least of all people. 
They had no rights. They lived out in the fields. We, we see them sometimes kind of dressed well and we kind of in these nice robes. Are you kidding me? They lived with sheep out in the middle of the pastures. They lived amongst the sheep droppings and they lived without showers and without bathing. They lived out there for days and weeks at a time. They ate from the land. They were nasty, dirty people because of their nasty, dirty jobs. Not because inwardly they were nasty and dirty, but outwardly they were, nobody wanted to be around them. There wasn't one father that, that when his child was born and put in the nice crib, you know, we grab our footballs and go, hey, son, you're going to be a football player one day. Or who knows? Some of you guys grab calculators and you're going to be the best accountant that ever lived someday. I don't know what you put in. But nobody grabbed a shepherd's staff and go, hey, son, someday you're going to be a shepherd and hang out with the sheep and smell pretty rotten. Didn't happen. That wasn't anybody's dream for their sons. It just wasn't. They were the lowliest of people. Matter of fact, they were considered so low on the social pole, if you will, they were not allowed to testify in the court of law. Their testimony was not allowed. Now think about this for a minute. Think about this for a minute. The God of the universe, the king of all kings, sends angels to who? The shepherds. And suddenly the heavens open up. And they say, hey, you're going to be the first to see. Hightail it right now over to Bethlehem because I want you to see the Savior, the one everybody's been waiting for. And then after you see him, go tell everybody. Oh, but wait a minute, we, we, uh, we, we're not even allowed to testify. Oh, that's Rome's economy. That's the Jewish economy. That's Israel's economy. That is not the Lord's economy. The Lord's economy is far different than that. He says, I care for the least of thee. these. The Lord's economy is an upside-down economy from the one that we run in our life. The Lord values the heart over what's outside. The Lord values the heart of devotion and dedication far before he'll ever value what we can bring to the table with our brains or our hands. The Lord values something far different. And he came to say, I care about the least of these. A couple years ago, and I think it was 2017, there were fires, as usual, in California, but in Southern California, they were racing and destroying homes and people and everything else. And down in Carlsbad, California, there was a a church, and most of the churches in this area were evacuated. But there were these news reports coming out about this group of people who went and saved a bunch of horses, and literally it was on every single station. And there was the talk about the horses that were saved. There was a GoFundMe page that was set up, and in an instant, $400,000 were given to help these horses. It was, really was a beautiful story. But there was one church that didn't have to be evacuated, and that church opened its doors to the migrant farm workers of California and said, come on in. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you. We'll house you. We'll walk with you. It did not make one news station story. It wasn't talked about. There was no GoFundMe page that was set up. You see, in God's economy, he cares about the least of these. If you look through the pages of Scripture, God didn't go after the, the rich and the wealthy and the most prominent. He didn't go after in the sense of who he would use next. The greatest king that ever lived was David, and he was considered the least of his brothers. 
He uses all people. He's in relationship with all people. But when the proud and the arrogant and the self-reliant come to him and say, Lord, look what I have. Use me. He goes to the one who says, Lord, I have my heart and it's devoted to you. Can you use me? And he changes lives in an instant. He cares about the least of these. Do we? Do we care and think highly of those that are less? Maybe this Christmas we will. Those are less educated or have less opportunities or less biblical knowledge. The shepherd story is not a cute one of a bunch of nice shepherds. It's the story of the unwanted but yet wanted by God. It says to us God's favor is not on us because of what we do, but because of who he is. He wants to care about the least of these. Not just at Christmas, but always. And he wants us to do the same. The story of the stable. The stable gives us a picture and tells the story of a God who understands our pain. In Luke 2, 1 through 6, we go back to that passage. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. See, he had to leave, and the baby was to be born in a stable. And as it continues, there was no room for them at an inn. They had to go into a stable. There was no room for them anywhere else they could stay. They went to a stable. A stable would have been kind of a cutout cave in the back of somebody's home. It was for the livestock. You see, the stable tells us that God knows our pain. He didn't come into a pristine palace. He didn't come with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't come looking like this. Now, that's a Jesus you want to be around. I mean, seriously, right? I mean, come on, blue eyes, blonde hair, beautiful backdrop. I mean, this is the guy that when he went out on the, you know, recess playground, all the kids wanted to be around him. This is the guy that he shows up and everybody's like, hey, I'll follow you. You're the man. Yeah, I'm going to leave it up here. Maybe I'm not. Listen to what Scripture says about who Jesus was. Don't fall. In Isaiah 53, this was Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Oh, he was not the one that everybody flocked to. You're like, no, 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 there were crowds that followed him after he got older. You go and do some miracles. You raise some people up from the dead. You make the blind see. There's going to be a bunch of people that follow you too. They weren't doing it because he was an attractive man. They weren't doing it because he was, he was contagious by his appearance. They weren't doing it just because they wanted to be around the homeless guy that walked around with a band of misfits. They weren't doing it for that reason. They were doing it for what they could get out of it. We tend to think that Jesus doesn't know our pain and there's this great lie of Satan that he doesn't understand and that Jesus, God, can't understand our problems and doesn't understand our pain and that is an actual lie. Who can understand better than Jesus who the day he was born was born in a stable, was born in a cave that was meant for livestock because there was no place for him to be? Who can know our pain more? And you say, oh, oh, but God, you don't understand. You don't understand my economic struggles. You don't understand I'm about to lose my job and I'll lose my home. You don't understand. And he says, oh, I do understand. I came from such a backwater town that nobody even wanted anything to do with me because of the backwater town I came from. And I didn't even have no money. And not only did I not have no money, but my parents couldn't even give the best offering. They gave the minimal offering of pigeons, which is basically rats with wings. That's what I was worth. I don't know your pain. It said I didn't have a place to lay my head. I, didn't know, I don't know your pain. I do know your pain. And that's why he came and he stepped into the world that we would have hope because we would know that he is a God that knows our pain, experienced our pain and yet was without sin, experienced our pain and yet lavishes us with love, experienced our pain and knows how to grant mercy and grace and to walk with us and keeps his promise to always be with us. He didn't hide out. Yeah, but you don't know the betrayal I feel, we might say to him. I have given so much and offered so much of myself, and they turned their back on me when I needed them most, and they weren't there. Not only were they not there, but they stabbed me in my back. Jesus, you don't know. Really? Of his 12 faithful ones, only one was left at the cross. All the rest disappeared. And the 50 and the 500 and the thousands that followed him were gone. And it was one of his own that turned him in and betrayed him. He doesn't know. He knows. He knows our pain. Lord, you don't understand this injustice that I'm going through. It's not right. They are hurting me. He doesn't know. He does know. Don't buy into the lie. The stable reminds us that he knows our pain. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He understands our pain. He understands what we're going through and wants to walk with us. That's why he came near to us. He wants to give us guidance. That's why he came near. He wants to show us how to make it through. That's why he came near. And he wants to walk with us through it. That's why he made the promise to never leave us or nor forsake us. That's why he came near. The Magi remind us that he pursues us regardless of who we are. 
The shepherds remind us that he cares for the least of us. And the stable reminds us that he knows our pain. And he will step into the worst moments of our lives. The manger, well, the manger reminds us that he transforms trash into trophies. Trash into trophies. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to the firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest rooms available for them. Wrapped him in a manger, cloth, and set him in a manger. It was a feeding trough. It was literally where animals with all their spit and saliva and their chew ate the muck of the day, and that's how they received their nourishment. The animals that were there to provide for the humans that owned them, that is where Jesus was put. And I don't care which one of our nativity scenes makes that manger look like this really well-crafted, just perfectly, you know, craftsman manger. It was a feeding trough, and there wasn't one thing you could do to clean it to make it better. There wasn't one thing you could do to make it valuable. It had no value or worth whatsoever. It wasn't worth a dime because you could use anything to feed an animal, and it was full of snot and slime and gunk. The God of the universe, the King of all kings, Emmanuel, God with us, laid in the manger. For then it became holy ground. For then it became pristine. For then it became the place of God's dwelling. Where have you been in your life? And he says, come to me, I forgive you. Where have you been in your life? And he says, wherever it's been, You're not unworthy of my love because my love showers upon you. I came to pursue you right where you are. I came to tell you that I'm here for the least of you. I came to tell you that I understand your pain. And the manger reminds us that whatever trash has been in our life, he turns it into something that is valuable. His very presence in our life turns it into something that is valuable, makes it eternally worth everything. It gives us hope for the future that we're never without it. And then he says, I will dwell in you. He literally makes ourselves his dwelling place because he makes a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will turn your life into something different. I will give you hope in a future. I will teach you how to live. He transforms us from trash to treasure. And you're like, hold on, I'm not trash. You bet you're not, because he made you. And what he made, no one can call trash. And yet we live in a way that we just seem to discard our lives. And our lives are not discarded to him. They are treasures because he seeks to indwell our lives and to give us hope and a future to shower us with his love. He came to make sure we knew that we were his treasure. We were his treasure. The Magi remind us that God is in pursuit of us. The shepherds remind us that he cares for the least of us. The stable reminds us that he knows our pain. And the manger, the feeding trough, reminds us that he will turn trash to trophies. 
And finally this, baby Jesus reminds us that there's a king to be worshipped. That there's a king to be worshipped. Matthew 2, 10 and 11 says this. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Revelation 1, 17 and 18 says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Meaning this, he holds the keys to death and life. And he says this, I've come to give you life. And who is it that holds the keys to death and life? Only God himself. The baby Jesus reminds us that he was the king of all and is worthy to be worshipped. And in John 14, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Magi remind us that God is in pursuit of us. The shepherds remind us he cares for the least of us. The stable reminds us that he knows our pain. The manger reminds us that he turns trash from trophies. The baby reminds us that he is a humble, powerful king to be worshipped in response to his love and grace that he poured out to us. He is not a tyrant king that causes the lowly to squirm in front of him. He is the king, the majesty of all, who came near in the most humble of ways and says, I love you, and I will take you just the way you are and give you hope and a future. I will give you life for today and into all eternity. The question for us today, that's the amazing gift. Will we receive it? Will we receive that gift? For he is the king of all kings. Will we receive it? He takes you just the way you are. It's a simple saying, yes. Yes, I want your gift today, Lord. Yes, I want you to take me in all of my junk. I'm so thankful you've been in pursuit of me. Yeah, I've made some trash in my life, absolutely. But I'm so thankful you turn it to trophies. You are who I desire to worship. I'm done worshiping myself and the things I do. I'm done with it. And we enter into this amazing relationship. For remember, he came as a baby. He lived as a man. He died on a cross to pay our penalty and rose from the dead to look death in the face and say, nothing can keep me from my people. I pray this Christmas there is nothing that is keeping you from being one of his people, from receiving his gift. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your amazing grace, your outrageous mercy. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for the way you give to us, that you didn't let anything in time nor space keep you from us. You didn't let our pursuit of our 
evil ways and destructive ways keep you from us. You didn't let our lowly position to keep you from us. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't let our arrogance keep you from us. You understand our pain that in the worst, darkest moments of our lives, we know that you understand us and you're there. And Father, we know. We know that you take all the things we've done to mess up this crazy life of ours. All the ways we've treated people poorly. And you've said, you are my trophy. And you have this great life for us, this one that has purpose and value. And just as you turn some crazy feeding trough into the, your throne room, you turn our lives into your throne room and you live with us moment by moment, day by day. You proved it by coming near to us and you solidified it by dying on the cross and you said nothing will ever keep me from you by beating death. And oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you. And today, if you want that relationship with Jesus, you just say, Lord, I accept your gift. Lord, I accept this life that you're offering. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, thank you that nothing will keep you from me. And now my life is fully yours. So I surrender it to you. You are my God and I am yours. Thank you, Jesus. I receive your gift today. In your name we pray. Amen.